according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you look for these things be diligent to be found by him in peace spotless and blameless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ our growth comes through the scriptures once again we are in philippians chapter 3 tonight philippians 3 looking at verses uh, 14 15 and 16 I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. And so we have what a lot of people view as a contradiction and which has sparked no shortage of debate over 2,000 years of commentary on Philippians. Uh, How can he say he's perfect in verse 15 when he says he's not been perfected in verse 12? Right? We've got the verb in verse 12, teleao, I have not already become perfect that is not a completed action and he disclaims that but then in verse 15 he says he is and others are with him in that perfection he says let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude and so that sparks no shortage of debate and consideration back and forth while paul was being sarcastic or he was being he was speaking with a note of irony and he was uh, addressing different critics and different things there which is actually valid in Corinthians, and it is actually valid in other contexts. It's just not valid here. And so uh, I think we've done well with it. We're going to keep proceeding on that basis. So anyway, let me open with a prayer. We'll get to our Q&A, and then we'll get to our study and pick up where we left off on Sunday. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision that we haven't earned or deserved. It's also uh, the freedom that our nation has as a grace provision, Father. And we thank you that you have continued to sustain our nation's freedom and the blessings that we have to assemble openly. We have a, uh, a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are and where we are and, and why we're here, Father, why we name the name of Christ and why we uh, grow in the word of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless our time tonight, that you would honor your word and uh, provide for it as it goes forth. Might we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, microphone runner is ready to go. So uh, I believe we can take our first question from the floor. I don't know if there was an email question that came in this afternoon. I didn't read it. I just saw an email in my inbox. So uh, I believe it came from Bill. And uh, so I'll, leave, I'll let him ask the first question if he wants to ask that. And then we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. I had a lot of plans this afternoon and then uh, an hour and a half on the phone with, uh, not even the phone, on a, on a video conference chat on the computer with, uh, with Pastor Dan Craw. And it was marvelous. We had a great time. And then next thing I knew, it was an hour and a half later, and, and everything I thought I was going to get done this afternoon didn't get done. So, yes, I have sir. a I have a tendency of not knowing how to uh, phrase my questions, so I'll just read the email I sent you because I didn't I kind of had time to maybe word it properly. Okay. Um, anyway, it says I was meditating on Romans eight twenty nine, and it says, and, it, and I came to a conclusion regarding predestination. And uh, obviously, predestination is not a salvational uh, passage, but it speaks more to the condition of the believer. God's predesigned plan isn't a matter of predetermining who is saved or not, but that those who place faith in Christ for salvation are predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son for the express purpose of being the firstborn of many brothers. That being the case, in order for Romans 8.29 to be a salvational passage, the emphasis must be placed not on predestined, but on God's foreknowledge, knowing who will place their faith in Christ for salvation. Only then does the person's destination change from eternal damnation to that of eternal glory, being predestined to be fully and eternally conformed into the image of the Son. So I just kind of wanted your thoughts, and I wanted to make sure my... Not, that sounded good. I'll have to read it again. I, I, I read better than I listen. So um, when I get home, I'll look at my email. But no, what I heard w- was good. Let me just address foreknowledge and predestination. I mean, these are easy things. We can knock this out in a minute. Um, <laughs> you get into some stuff that really people make extra complicated. And I think 
the moment they do that, they've already lost the discussion. Why, why make it complicated? So um, just just take it as simple as it is. So um, I think you're correct, if I heard you, that predestination is not so much a, a salvific issue in terms of salvation, although that's included, it's bigger than that, it's more than that, because it is predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And that's bigger than just getting saved, okay? And of course, if you're not saved, then you'll never be conformed to the image of his son. So being saved is, 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 is part of that, you know, it's the first process, and then beyond that is the conformity. Um, in any event, those whom he foreknew, and, and really foreknowledge has to be studied first, and because there's a chain, this is a logical chain, this is a process, and it's spelled out the same way here that it's spelled out in, in 1 Peter, by the way. And so there's uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so, um, and this is, follows up with verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we claim that as a promise because, uh, rightly so, because we are the ones that are called according to his purpose. We are the ones who love God, right? And that, uh, remember that the calling itself is not everything because many are called, but few are chosen. And that's another principle that we want to add to this mix as we study these things out because the calling is bigger than the choosing. That's undeniable, even though folks ferociously deny it. All right, so... Uh, so this is, how, this is what God does. He works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Then, those whom He foreknew. That is so huge. Those whom He foreknew. And, and when, if you wrap your mind around that and you get that part right, everything else follows, right? But those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And then it goes beyond that too because in verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called those whom he called, he also justifies. So there's a chain beyond that. But just starting with calling and uh, or foreknowing and predestining, I think this this then becomes really the real issue. So those whom he foreknew, and just ask the question of yourself. I throw it out there. Foreknew, foreknew what? You know, he foreknew them. He foreknew their existence. He foreknew their name. Well, that's everybody. I mean, who did he not foreknow that they would exist? Right. Everybody that exists, he foreknew that they would exist. So it's not just existence. So he foreknew that Bill Kelly would exist. Well, big deal. All right? The, the fact is, it's not foreknowledge of your existence that causes him to predestine you. If that was the case, he'd predestine everybody and we'd all be saved. Obviously, that's not right. So those whom he foreknew, foreknew what? Foreknew that we'd be... Um, you know, left-handed, uh, ambidextrous albinos. I don't know, whatever. He foreknows. There's criteria, and clearly, he foreknows who accepts and who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the conclusion, right? Foreknowledge of an, an offer that's freely given and an offer that's freely accepted, or an offer that's freely given and an offer that's freely rejected, see? And with that full foreknowledge of who accepts and who rejects, now, uh, anyone here think God's an idiot? I don't think God's an idiot. So if God knows that this group of people is going to accept and this group of people is going to reject, who is it that he's going to predestine? <laughs> All right? And this, I mean, to me, there's a subset. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Is that clear? All right. So that, I think that everything else, I think, gets simple after that. Now, Robert, you want to add to that? Or? Let's bring... <clears throat> I just found it interesting that you came to universal salvation by watering Forneau down um, to meaning just knowing us. But that's exactly the argument that MacArthur and some others use to, to say that Forneau doesn't mean that he knew you were going to be saved, he just knew you. But they go the other direction mm -hmm. from it. They don't find universal salvation in it, even though that's a logical step. They go totally illogically in the other direction. They, the word is Im impossible to make work in their ph philosophy, so they uh, ignore it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it's the same thing here. So it's those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And, and clearly there's a group that he does, so he does. There's a group that he doesn't, so he doesn't. And that's just the, the nature of it. 
Likewise, in uh, the introduction to 1 Peter, and it's unfortunate that we have the verse division there between verse 1 and verse 2, but it's uh, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so again, there's according to the foreknowledge. Foreknowledge becomes a criteria. So what does he know ahead of time? That, you know, that you're left-handed, that you play Scrabble, that you, I mean, what does he foreknow ahead of time? You have corny jokes. He knows that you're going to accept the gospel under these circumstances uh, or reject the gospel under these circumstances. He knows all of that. And so on the basis of his foreknowledge, he then chooses, he then predestines, he then calls, he does all the process we see there in Romans 8. So I think foreknowledge is awesome. Foreknowledge too, by the way, is not determinative. Just because he sees that it will happen does not make it necessary that it happens. It does not make it logically necessary. It just means that it's certain. He knows it's going to happen. It's not causative or determinative. And what Calvinists like to do, what MacArthur likes to do, a lot of these guys, they say, well, because he foreknows it, it has to happen. And it's causative. Because if, if, he, if it would have been something else, he would have seen that instead. But because he saw this, then is determinative. It has to happen. And, and by the way, they limit foreknowledge, they limit omniscience to only those things that he decrees. He, 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 he sees it ahead of time because he determined it would happen. That's how they define foreknowledge. He knows it will happen ahead of time because he decreed that it would. And that's a bad definition of omniscience. It's a bad definition of foreknowledge. It denies that he can know anything that doesn't actually happen in the future. So all the what-ifs, things that never do happen, but he knows they would have happened. He knows the could-haves and would-haves that might have happened had other things been different. And, uh, and, and, and that view is totally rejected by Calvinism, by MacArthur, and by that whole crowd. Because they define omniscience as he only knows the future because he has foreordained the future. And that's such a limited view of omniscience. It's not even an omniscience. It's a, it's a, it's a partial omniscience, you know. Uh, it's not an omniscience, anyway. All right, Robert. Just just looking up there, and the word for chosen is the same word prognosco, isn't it? As over in uh, Romans, it's it's way up there, about fourth line. Kata prognosis, yeah, according to the prognosis, according to the foreknowledge. Oh, the word for chosen is a clake toys. Okay, way up there. Okay, I didn't yeah. see that. Thank way you. up there. Yeah, sometimes Greek is not a word order language, so the, the word is not always where you think it should be. Sometimes it's way early, sometimes it's way late, sometimes it's in a different verse from where the English puts it. So uh, that becomes a, a mystery too sometimes. All right, other questions tonight. Appreciate believers that think, that put scriptures together with scriptures. All right, we'll give Bill our final up. If anyone else, anyone but Bill, ABB. All right, Bill, it's yours. I feel the love in the room tonight. Um, to, in, in hopes of not complicating this issue even further, I, I was reading on something. It would seem like if Calvinists believe in predestination as salvific, mm-hmm. then they have to agree with a dual predestination. Yes. Meaning that some were predestined for eternal life, some were predestined for eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. And what I'm gathering is, because I kind of was thinking that same thing there for a moment as far as the predestination for eternal damnation, Uh but Romans 8, 29, so forth and so on, clearly states that there's only one predestination, Mm -hmm. and that's the predestination of the believers to be conformed and so forth and so on. Yeah, they do have some other verses that talk about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, so they like to point to that and say, see, that's... That's predestination unto damnation. But you're right. Uh, if, if the Calvinist is fair, intellectually fair, then he has to also accept the double predestination. That God, if, if everything is rigid determination, where God makes you choose everything you choose, and he, he sovereignly, like a puppet master, controls everything that's said and done and thought, then that means he's the author of sin, he's the author of evil, he forces every unbeliever to reject the gospel, he, he predestines those that go to heaven, he predestines those that go to hell. And it's really not their fault, but who are you, O Pot, to, to challenge the, the creator? You know, they, they go there a lot. 
um, with respect to that. Now, not every Calvinist does that because they, most of them are uncomfortable with that because they read the other parts of the Bible and, and they see a loving God that's not the author of evil. Um, but then the more that they, they cling to their Calvinism and the more you are a rigid determinist, you kind of have to go there. And so finally, if they're, they, either, they either are fair to their logic and accept double predestination, um, that is predestination to glory and predestination to damnation, or they admit that they're hypocritical and they live with, the, they live with it. They just learn to accept the incongruity of God choosing this group and then by virtue of not choosing this group, condemning them to hell. Even Spurgeon stopped short of the, the double predestination. Correct. And he, but he, he still could not answer for God being a loving God and still predestining people to eternal damnation. Yeah, he, uh, he was a Calvinist, but he was really a moderate, and he, uh, he, he got in trouble. There's a book by Ian Murray called uh, Spurgeon versus the Hyper-Calvinist. And it's not a long book. I recommend it. It's five bucks maybe. It's, it's a short little book. And um, I was looking for it the other day and I don't have it. So I loaned it to somebody and it's not on my shelf anymore. But um, I recommend it because you can read and they've got newspaper clippings and they've got headlines and they got... He was vilified in London uh, through his ministry because by fellow Calvinists that felt he was a traitor to, to his Calvinism. And, and, and so he... And then he provoked a lot of it too. He was not, you know, he was not timid. And so he would, he would provoke a lot of that too. He'd be on evangelistic campaigns. He loved giving the gospel. And he would preach, you know, Lord, save all the elect. And then he'd say, elect some more, right? Now, he knows for a fact that election was before the foundation of the world and before, you know. So when he said, elect some more, he was, I think he was tweaking them. I think he was just, because I think, I think he just had a love for the lost and he wanted more folks to get saved. And so, you know, save the elect and then elect some more was his way of expressing expressing a, a desire to to seek and to save the law. So, but it did get him in trouble. And I recommend Ian Murray if you want to read that on Spurgeon versus the uh, the hyper Calvinist. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. We appreciate the ministry of microphone uh, movement. There you go. Ministry of microphone movement. Philippians three. So we have the focus of Paul's pressing forward, onward and upward, right? Goal, prize, upward call. And we discussed the skapos, the brabeon, and then the, uh, the onoclesis of the upward call. And, uh, and we saw in this process, I'm not going to repeat that, but um, the idea that we have a goal I think is significant, and that when we reach that goal there is a prize is also significant, and that uh, it is an upward call. It's not an earthly call. We're not an earthly people. And it's very unique in this upward call. This focus is unique to the dispensation of the church. Now we did see an upward path in uh, Proverbs this morning. I was glad for that. That if you are looking up, then you're, uh, it was uh, described as a method of wisdom as it relates to not uh, falling into the sin patterns that will send you to Sheol prematurely. And the consequences of living a carnal life include the sin and the death and, and temporal judgment. Um, but be that as it may, even though the Old Testament believer certainly was looking upward, I don't deny that. Abraham was looking upward. Abraham was looking for a city whose uh, you know, builder was God. Uh, they were looking for a country not their own. I think that it's clear that Old Testament saints had a perspective whereby they could look to the God of heaven and, uh, and receive their divine guidance in the Word of God. So um, the upward focus by itself is not unique to the dispensation of the church. But the upward focus in terms of an upward calling is unique. And an upward calling that is in Christ Jesus is absolutely unique. No Old Testament saint was in Christ Jesus. The greatest heroes of the Old Testament, from Noah to Daniel to Job to John the Baptist, Jesus himself said, of those born among women, there's none that's arisen greater than John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist was not in Christ. No Old Testament saint was in Christ. The only way to be in Christ is for Christ to be victorious at the cross and to be seated in, at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. And so for him to be seated, that's why Jesus told his disciples this. They were boo-hooing in the upper room and all you know, 
sad about the cross and the things coming up. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, then the helper cannot be sent to you. And so it's to your advantage that I go away. And as, as thrilling as it must have been for the twelve and whoever else that followed Jesus and, and to walk the earth when he walked the earth, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that would have been awesome to be a part of that. However, what we have is better. What we have is better than a three and a half year ministry of walking around with Jesus and going to different places, even walking on water or whatever else. All right, because Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. And this was part of this morning's message too and part of what we're going to talk about next Wednesday morning as well. The, uh, the uh, upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the positional truth whereby every believer today in the church age, at the moment of your salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That God the Holy Spirit baptizes you into personal union with Jesus Christ. We're baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. We are in Christ. No Old Testament believer ever had any of that. They got saved. They had eternal life. They were assured of a future resurrection. Job was confident. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he said, I will take my stand upon the earth from my flesh. I will see God. He had a a total anticipation of physical resurrection. But Job was not in Christ. No Old Testament saint was. So these things are critical. And, and the fact that when we sin, what does it say in 1 John? These have been written that you may not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Daniel didn't have that. Noah didn't have that. No Old Testament saint had that. You know, we do. Jesus didn't have that. Jesus walked this earth. He didn't have an advocate seated at the Father's right hand because he hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> okay, so we've got to think how these things all come together and recognize this is this is awesome. And when the totality of how powerful this is just sinks, sinks into our, you know, seeps into our understanding, when the reality becomes a subjective realization and we go, wow, <laughs> we're partakers of the divine nature. We are, you know, God doesn't see the sinner, he sees his son. And all of these blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Christ. Why, how can we have everything? Because we're in Christ. Christ is the heir of everything. Okay? And so we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And, and that just gets overwhelming. Because to whom much is given, much shall be required. Of whom they entrusted much, they will expect all the more. Well, how, what do they expect of us? What have we been given? Everything. <laughs> and so this then becomes, uh, I think, significant. And so as we deal with this here then, um, press on. I, Paul says, I'm doing this. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But this upward call is not just Paul all by his lonesome, it's all of us. So he then switches to a, a, a what's called a cohortative um, uh, exhortation here. He's, he's inviting his readers to join him. And he says, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. Okay. And Paul does this occasionally. He'll, he'll drift into this every so often. Um, he'll have these uh, first-person plural uh, cohortative subjunctives. But really, the author of Hebrews has it everywhere. This is something that's a writing style that we find throughout Hebrews in all kinds of places. But, but here's a Pauline usage. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. So uh, if you consider yourself in the perfect category, then this is your application. And so this is what main point four is about. The word for perfect is the same as the word for mature. I use the terms interchangeably. I think the the New Testament uses them interchangeably. Um, Mature believers. Mature believers who are still being matured. Okay, We don't view that as a finished process, but mature believers know who they are. Mature believers allow the Lord to demonstrate their wrong attitudes. And they welcome every attitude adjustment. See, that's a mark of maturity. If, uh, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. You say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> now, immature believers, um, they don't like that. Don't show me where I'm wrong. Don't show me where uh, I have the wrong attitude. Don't show me where my thinking needs adjustment. Um, uh, don't, show, don't tell me my attitude's wrong. I like my attitude. So change your attitude. Tell me I'm okay with my attitude. That's a babe, okay? That's immaturity. That's, a, that's a, either a baby or an adolescent believer, 
a lot of times more the adolescent. Okay? I think the babe is too oblivious to even know that, uh, that his attitudes are being shown. He's still working on deeds of the flesh and ver- verbal sins and whatever. He hadn't even gotten to the mental attitude sins yet. But anyway, when you start getting into the mental attitude sins and you're progressing through the stages from babyhood to adolescence to maturity, uh, when you reach this mature status, and I think this is uh, what we deal with as we talk about this, this is the conviction of the teleos. You know that you're teleos, you know that you're mature when you make the statement Paul made that you've not become perfect, that you've not been teleoed. And that's the, uh, that's the key on that. So we'll address that as well. In fact, that was sub-point A. The definitive testimony of a teleos mature believer is to acknowledge being not yet teleo perfected. Being not yet teleo perfected. And some of you actually complimented my cooking illustration on Sunday, so I'm going to stick with that. I, you know, I like the compliments. So the idea that cooking is a process and that you can be cooked. In fact, sometimes it's already cooked when you bring it from the store. You get it at H-E-B, it's pre-cooked, right? Which pre-cooked is just cooked before you got it. And then, and then you take it home and then you've got to heat it up, right? So you're cooking it some more. Um, maybe. All right. So the idea, though, when you claim teleos status, when you, when you say, when you affirm, I am a teleos believer, there's duties that go with that. There's expectations that go with that. God's going to hold you accountable that uh, you've got to come alongside the younger believers. You've got to come alongside the babes and the adolescents that uh, you're going to have a role to play as a teleos believer. Uh, the older women to the younger women, the older men to the younger men, that there is a role for the teleos believer. And so if you want to avoid that, you can't. <laughs> All right? If you want to avoid that or deny, well, I'm not teleos yet. Well, what, you can deny reality, but reality is reality. And so I recommend that you conform and that you confess and that you admit what, uh, what God objectively holds to be true. And that you arrive to that, uh, to that status. I think, um, and you're expected to know it as well. As many as are perfect and you know who you are. He doesn't have to tell them who they are. He just throws it out there and says, if you're with me in this, as many as are perfect, any of my readers who happen to be in the teleos maturity status, then adopt this attitude. Okay? And, uh, and if you are struggling with that, God's going to show that to you. And you're going to welcome that. Because that's what mature believers do. So that's the definitive testimony. It defines what it means to be mature. And um, whereas, as I was saying on Sunday, if, you, if you're arrogant... If, you, uh, if you're going to reject Paul's approach to this, and, and if you're going to say, like Paul says, I haven't regarded myself as having laid hold of it yet in verse 13, some people will. There are arrogant people that think, yep, I'm there. I've attained it. I'm there. I'm, I'm ready. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm rapture ready and I'm, you know, probably because that's your attitude, you're not as teleos as you think you are. Okay. I suspect you're still in those adolescent stages where the adolescent thinks that they're older than they really are. They think that they're fully engaged in the adult capacity. They don't they fail to see that they still have lingering elements of their childhood that haven't quite, you know, grown out of that yet. It's still it's still there. And so the 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 actual denial uh, of uh, that there's still things to grow. I think that's a mark of of immaturity. So the teleos believer, he is teleos, but he knows that God's going to keep on teleoing him um, every day, every day between here and glory. Today is another day to be teleoed, even though I'm already teleos. I'll just get more teleos, okay? More perfect, more complete related to that. Um, we're going to get to the subpoints and uh, and uh, B and C here in a moment, but in 1 John mentioned this on Sunday. In 1 John 2, you know, the, the audience that he's writing to, verses 12, 13, 14. You familiar with this passage? 1 John 2, verses 12, 13, and 14. He's got three different groups that he's writing to. 
And they know who they are. He doesn't have to tell them who they are. I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. And so in, in terms of the Word of God as it's written, in terms of the canon, in terms of Bible class, you know, the same preacher can be standing in the same pulpit and you've got the whole spectrum of growth sitting there learning the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit takes it and feeds every believer where they are. The babes, the adolescents, the mature believers are listening to the same Bible class. And the Holy Spirit's teaching everybody. It's a glorious thing. So, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. If you're a child, do you know you're a child? <laughs> you know? I think earthly kids know they're earthly kids. I think spiritual kids know they're spiritual kids. It's, uh, it's not uh, it's not complicated, okay? Because you're looking around, everybody's taller than you, right? Everybody talks to you like you're an idiot. Um, yeah, you're just a little kid. And then you start to grow. And, uh, and, uh, and each age level here knows where they are. All right. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men. And so this is kind of the middle territory now. They're, not, they're no longer children, but they're not yet fathers. Young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And realize that. How long does it take for you to get engaged in the angelic conflict? Not long. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Anyway, it's a real easy passage to find. It's easy to look at. It's easy to illustrate with. To demonstrate the fact that spiritual growth comes in on this continuum, on this spectrum. And as these folks are being addressed, they know who they are. The mature believer knows who they are. When Paul says, as many of us as are perfect, they know who they are. And those that are the teleos believers are going to respond to that exhortation appropriately. To me, it's, um, I don't know why people will disclaim this. And I've encountered some over the years. And they don't want to, they say, I don't really want to label myself. I don't really want to, I don't really want to say that I'm mature. I don't really want to say that I'm adolescent. I don't really want to say, well, first of all, why not? And then secondly, I mean, if the Scripture is laying itself out this way, what are you, what are you resisting? What are you, what are you running from? What, what is it, it, what's the problem in admitting where you are? Okay. Anyway, to me it's, uh, it becomes a, a false bravado even, a false, like a humble brag, you know? Well, I don't want to call myself mature. Well, I don't either, all right? Let's just grow up and, and we'll call it when we get there. How about that? So let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So that's the, the definitive testimony. I th- I, um, good illustration um, at a pre-trib conference. Um, and, and just different, Dave Hunt was one such man, I think. Earl Rodmacher was another one. These are older men. Tim LaHaye was a real humble man. And each of these men that I got to meet at these conferences, uh, Rodmacher especially, he, he would be raising his hand, he'd be asking questions, he'd be, you know, he probably knew more than the speaker did, but he was still asking the speaker questions and just very humble, wanted to learn and, and didn't want to approach any kind of speaker at the conference like he knew more than the speaker did. And just always had a, a, this attitude of, I want to learn and I'm still learning. And uh, of course he's with the Lord now, a lot of those old guys are these days. All right. So some subpoints on this. We are being matured and we need the attitude adjustments. And if we, if we resist the attitude adjustments, we'll never mature. Uh, so we need the attitude adjustments. And that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God transforms and equips believers to a mature status and an eternal perfection. That's what we're coming to. God expects us to be perfect. He says, be thou perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so that means we get transformed. That means we submit to the Word of God. That means that we grow beyond our salvation status. And uh, we're going to go from the cross to the crown on this process. Okay? 
And so uh, this is what we're looking at here in Romans 12, 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, Ephesians 4, 13, Colossians 1, 28, 4, 12, Hebrews 5, 14. Now some people might despair and say, well, how long does this take? You know, I want to be mature, but I want to be mature right now. Uh, it shouldn't take more than a couple weeks, right? You know, I mean, I was just saved in July. It's already August, practically September. When, when do I reach maturity? Well, okay, we got 66 books. How many of you memorized? <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's curious because um, it's infinite and you spend the rest of your life learning the Word of God. You spend the rest of your life growing and learning and reaching dimensions of understanding and, and, and even in simpler doctrines that you, you knew years and years ago, now you're starting to see those same doctrines again in, on a deeper level in a, in a more uh, intimate way. In, uh, in, in broader applications than you ever even thought of before. And that's a good thing. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship isn't the singing and the dancing and the waving of the arms and all that other stuff. It's living your life according to the Word of God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is transformation. This is, this is better than, you know, Hollywood can make a comic book movie or something, you know, the Transformers and whatever. We are being transformed into maturity, into growth, into powerful men and women in Christ. And that's uh, It's amazing. So that you may demonstrate the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and teleos, perfect. So we want to be teleos, that means we've got to be living the word of God to demonstrate that teleos will of God. And, uh, and there you have it. 1 Corinthians 2.6, part of letting the word of God shape us. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. And what a joy that we have the rest of our lives to do this as long as He allows us to do this. And if you get saved younger, then theoretically you've got, uh, you've got longer to, uh, to be transformed. It says, um, 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Remember, Corinth was really big on bringing in the top dollar speakers. They were bringing in the big money uh, men of rhetoric and logic and, and, uh, and all of that. And the top orators of the day could demand the top prices. You know, like on the speaking circuit today, you can get these guys and pay a lot of money to bring these speakers in. And Paul said, that wasn't my gig. I wasn't here uh, impressing you guys. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It was really a low point in his ministry when he went crawling into Corinth. Probably a good thing Priscilla and Aquila were there because that, uh, that's uh, what, exactly what Paul needed. And my message was, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that's exactly what that, what that group needed at that time. They didn't need these fancy schmancy men of rhetoric. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And watching when I am weak, then I am strong. Watching the, uh, the foolishness of the fool and how God works in that. It's a positive thing. Yet we do speak wisdom, it says in verse 6, among those who are mature, among those who are teleos. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. See, the more teleos you are, the more foolish this world becomes. And because you're absorbing God's wisdom. And God says the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And they think you're the fool because you don't accept evolution. You don't accept Big Bang. You don't accept all this other stuff that they're accepting. You don't accept uh, the gender confusion. You don't accept the, all the other junk science that's out there posing as science. And, uh, and you believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, aren't you the moron, right? You believe that there was a flood. You believe that, uh, you know, that all these things uh, the Bible talks about are true. 
And so, yes. And the more teleos you are, the more conformed you are to the Word of God, the, uh, the more that the wisdom of this age is going to, uh, going to spark friction there. All right. So we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Again, it's part of the unique nature of the church age. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan made such a tactical mistake when he crucified Jesus Christ. Like we were talking earlier about all those advantages we have because a victorious Lord is seated at the Father's right hand. You know, if, if Satan could have found some way to keep that from happening, he'd have been in a better place than he is now, I'll tell you that. So, um, that should be encouraging too. That these fallen angels, they may be genius, they may be powerful, they may be, they don't know everything, and they make blunders, and they don't understand what God's doing most of the time, and they're just, you know, they're trying to catch glimpses, they're trying to figure things out. And uh, based on their misunderstandings, they make poor choices. Thankfully, God does not. He's omniscient and he's omnisapient. And uh, he's, he knows everything and he is very wise in how he uses that knowledge. All right. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 4. Do you ever think about that difference? You ever study the essence box? As we've been going through Geisler lately, um, we had that. We had omniscience, that he has all knowledge, but also omnisapience that he has all wisdom. And some uh, theologies don't go there. Some theologies don't differentiate between knowledge and wisdom, but you have to differentiate between knowledge and wisdom. Because there's a lot of people that are very smart, they've got a lot of knowledge, but they're total fools. They have no wisdom whatsoever and they, they don't use what they know very well. Okay? And other people have limited knowledge, but within the scope of what they know, they sure use it well. Okay? And they may, they may be more humble in terms of their raw knowledge, but they're very wise in how they live and how they conduct themselves and they apply the word that they have uh, better than a lot of other folks. So what a blessing as we're reading in Geisler that we have the omniscience component of God being all knowledge, but then also the omnisapience attribute whereby he is infinitely wise in making use of his infinite knowledge. And there's a, that's a neat combination. That, uh, that gets me excited. All right. Well, Ephesians 4. And I know I got verse 13. Um, I think we also kind of want to talk about 22 and 24 and some of these other, I think 23, that you'd be renewed in the spirit of your mind, just because that goes so well with, with Romans 12 too that we were looking at earlier. But anyway, in Romans 4.13, part of why we have pastors and evangelists and part of why we function in a local church is this very thing right here. And uh, this is a text we're going to see next week in Proverbs because uh, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. And uh, this is uh, from Psalm 68 and its application here in Hebrews 4. But verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And those are the equipping gifts for the church age. The first two were in the first century and then uh, since the apostles and prophets are gone now, what are we left with? We're left with uh, Doug and me. <laughs> All right. We got evangelists and we got pastors and teachers. And uh, no more apostles, no more prophets. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so we're building up the body corporately. We're also building up the individual members of the body personally until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a teleos man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so I enjoy this. This is what the Word of God does. This is what gifted believers do in a local assembly. This is how we function together in, in a local assembly, being equipped and being stabilized. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there, there should be stability. Doctrine gives you that stability. The Melchizedek priesthood gives you that stability. And uh, it won't be this Sunday because we've got a missionary report this Sunday. But next Sunday we'll be finishing up Hebrews chapter 6 where we have an anchor that is sure and steadfast within the veil. And uh, with an anchor, sure and steadfast, we've got three terms of stability. And, uh, and here we've got stability. We're not tossed here and there by waves or carried about by every wind 
of doctrine. And so thank God for the stability. But this is what we see as the Word of God transforms and equips believers to a teleos status and an eternal perfection. Colossians 1, 28. Verse 24 says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. If there's a certain number of amount of suffering that has to happen that finishes the church, well, Paul says, I've done my share. <laughs> he says, I got more than my share of Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. When God gives you a gift, is it for you? Of course not. It's for everybody else. That you edify others in the body of Christ. That I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. How unique is the church age. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what would you rather have? You want to be a disciple walking around with Jesus? Or do you want Christ in you, the hope of glory? The life that you now live, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the faith, right? Clearly, ours is the, uh, the greater glory. So we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man teleos in Christ. Teleos in Christ. What a joy to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and watch each member, because I've got to give an account. Hebrews 13 says I've got to give an account. So what am I going to say? Here comes a believer, going to stand there. Teleos, complete in Christ. Teleos, okay? And this is why we labor present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. That's the goal. Still in Colossians 4.12 This is in a section here. He's got some greetings. Um Tychicus is mentioned in verse 7. As to my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, fellow bondservant, will bring you information. That's why I sent him, so you may know of our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. He's the runaway slave from the book of Philemon. And he travels with Tychicus, carrying the book of Colossians and carrying the book of Philemon one of your number. They will inform me about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. He was from Thessalonica and one of the leaders that Paul trained there. Also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom he received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That's good to hear too because uh, Paul and Mark had that falling out and he ended up, uh, he and Barnabas had that falling out because of Mark. But this is a clue that things were better then. And um, also Jesus, who is called Justice, so you don't confuse him with the other Jesus. Okay, <laughs> How embarrassing would that be? So here's Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers from the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand teleos, perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. And uh, we've been dealing with that full assurance principle in, in Hebrews, the full assurance of hope, the full assurance of faith, the full assurance of the will of God. And uh, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then Luke, where we learn he's a doctor. The beloved physician sends you his greetings and also Demas who's not yet uh, loved this present age and gone to Thessalonica. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Also Nympha 
Look forward to meeting her someday in the church that is in her house. All right. Anyway, uh, presenting each man mature, teleos, eternally perfected. And then finally, of course, Hebrews 5.14. We were there a couple weeks ago, not that long ago. And Hebrews, why are you not grown up yet? Why are you still drinking milk? I want to give you guys the Melchizedek doctrine and you're not ready for it yet. Concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for somebody to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the teleos, the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is what the Word of God does. And so you learn it, you live it, your senses are trained, and you're fully engaged in your Christian walk. The ultimate mature status is the perfect love of God the Father. The ultimate mature status is the perfect love of God the Father. Matthew 5, 48 and 1 John 4, 18. You know, as your teleod, as, as, tele, as teleos is happening, and... Uh, and I think it's fair to say that you can be teleos in certain areas and not teleos in other areas. That, uh, that all of us are going to have blind spots. All of us are going to have uh, certain things, you know, weaknesses and struggles, different, uh, different realms of teaching whereby we, uh, we're not as teleos as we are in other areas. Okay? And, in, in, and if that's the case, then praise God for your helpmate because uh, God can then bless you in that in the, uh, the areas where you're not quite so teleos, then uh, hopefully she is, right? Or in the areas where she's not quite so teleos, then hopefully you are. And then uh, together your, your maturities can counterbalance and, uh, and cover for one another in that. But I think the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the teleos status is described here uh, with, with the uh, understanding of perfect love, right? Because perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love is the, is the ultimate in, in 1 John 4. And I think it goes well with Matthew 5.48. You are to be teleos as your heavenly Father is teleos. I've cited it several times already and just haven't looked at it yet. But Matthew 5.48. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's conflict and there's uh, struggle. There's a lot dealing with here in, in Matthew 5. But you should love your enemies and you should uh, pray for those who persecute you. That's not easy. Who wants to love their enemy? You know, they're persecuting me. I'd rather just throw lightning bolts at them, you know? What was that with uh, throwing lightning bolts and always hitting your target? We, we saw that in some pagan literature last week. Well, here's... Uh, doesn't that sound better? No? Love your enemies. See? Christ loved us and went to the cross for us. We were His enemies. So that you may be sons, so that you may manifest yourself publicly as sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise in the just and the unjust, the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? That's not what it's about. That's how the world operates. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or what have you done for me lately? Kind of thing. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I like that tandem because let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector comes from this. All right, verse 48. Therefore you are to be teleos as your heavenly Father is teleos. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And to me, I mean, I thought Leviticus was rough. I thought Leviticus, I mean, when it said you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy, that's a pretty high bar. And then we realize in the New Testament that's, that's kind of a low bar. That's leading up to this teleos bar. Holiness is part of perfection. And really, Perfect love, loving those who hate you, loving, praying for those who persecute you in, uh, in that, okay? And so we have the love of the Father there in a sacrificial application. Same thing in 1 John four eighteen. Perfect love that casts out all fear. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. 
God is agape. He's not philos, he's not storgos, he's not eros. God is agape. And the one who abides in agape abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected within us, teleaod, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. No fear. Think about how you stand before the judgment. Are you going to be shrinking away in shame? There is no fear in love, but perfect love. Teleos agape, casts out fear. Fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Anyway, there is so much to this. This is the ultimate mature status. It's the perfect love of God the Father. And so we think this way. And so we think this way. Thinking this way. Have this attitude. It is Christ-like and it is perfect. Thinking, uh, the, the perfection process centers on your thinking. And we've already had this idiom in chapter 2. You might remember, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. But when it says, let us therefore, as many as are teleos, have this attitude. Think this way. Phreneo is a thinking verb. Think this way. Think this way. And if you have a different way of thinking, that's wrong. <laughs> okay? It's not alternative. God's thinking is the thinking we're called to think. Think this way. Have this attitude. It is Christ-like. It is perfect. Similar with the kenosis doctrine of Philippians 2. Think this way in yourselves, which also Christ thunk in himself. Have this attitude in yourselves, but also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? If you are unwilling to empty yourself, if you're unwilling to be humbled, then you're not thinking Christ-like. And you're not thinking teleos. You're not thinking mature. Yeah, it's actually a satanic thinking of promotion and me, the, me first and looking out for number one and all the other attitudes that are not Christ-like and are not perfect. Thinking this way. I like 1 Corinthians 14, 20. The Bible tells you how to think. <laughs> you know... Sometimes when I'm talking to atheists and they, they kind of, the mask slips a little bit and it's pretty clear what they think church is all about. They think church is all about, you know, a bunch of self-righteous people that are just judgmental and making people conform and telling you what to do, telling you what to think, how to think. No, we're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace and learning the Bible it's the Bible that tells us how to think. <laughs> okay? And it's the Bible that makes very clear that, uh, that our new nature in Christ is entirely alien to that old nature in Adam and that it requires a new way of thinking. And that uh, to, to try to be saved and still maintain that old way of thinking is just, it's just wrong. It just, you know, not, uh, it just makes no sense. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, it's... Uh, the aspect here, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be teleos, in your thinking be mature. And we should be so rusty and evil, out of practice, you know, um, because, you know, those days are behind us. Uh, all that garbage we used to walk in before we were saved, all that, the time past is sufficient. And so go ahead and, and retrograde back to an infantile way of thinking as far as evil is concerned. <laughs> you don't want to be practiced at it. You want to be experienced at it. You don't want to be, you know, mature sinners. You want to be uh, inf infantile in uh, the things of evil. But in your thinking, be mature. And uh, anyway, we, that was kind of a fun subject when we were talking about tongues and miracles and prophecy and what the why all the spectacular sign gifts were in the first century, and why we don't need those anymore. Why the church with a full canon of Scripture, who needs that immature stuff? We've got the complete canon. 
we, uh, we function in mature biblical Christianity. All right, so uh, Sunday morning we'll come back to this, and uh, there is a subpoint C, and then there's a main point five, and uh, that will take us through the end of verse 16, and that will wrap up this, uh, this paragraph. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. Uh, Father, we've, we've studied it, we've learned it, and I pray now that we would chew on it and dwell on it, and uh, let it dwell richly within us. As, as a meal goes, Father, we've, we've uh, chewed it and swallowed it, and now we need to let it digest and let it, uh, let it dwell richly. And, and um, I don't know, maybe we can burp it up and taste it some more and, and think about it some more, Father. Just keep, uh, keep working this truth so that it's very real to us, that uh, we not only know the facts about it, but we can, we can live it out in a, in, a, in a manner that glorifies your Son. So I thank you, Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.